So digital empathy is trying to replicate some of the things that we're used to in the face-to-face or the voice-to-voice environment, but doing it across all the other channels of, say, where one party isn't a human being. Welcome back to the CX Pulse podcast. I'm your host, Amelia Rose Earhart. On today's show, we talk digital empathy with Peter Dorrington, the co-founder and chief strategy officer at Anthrolytics. And the topic we're going to discuss today is absolutely fascinating. So why don't we kick things off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got so specialized in this topic. Yeah, thanks very much, Amelia. I'll be delighted. So firstly, I'll just say one sentence about Anthrolytics so that people understand where we're coming from. We're a software as a service analytics company that combines data science with behavioral science to get a better understanding into what is it that people really care about, why they care about it, and what they're likely to do next. It all started about eight years ago when I was looking for a way to improve the performance of traditional predictive analytics, things like data mining and machine learning. What I wanted to know is why don't they do a better job of predicting what humans are going to do? And it was, of course, coming to mind that there's a behavioral element of this. So it isn't just quantifiable structured data about who you are and how much you earn and where you spend it and where you live, but also about what we feel. So it took me a while to figure out how to do that. This combination of the data science, which was very well understood, and the emotional content of behavioral science, where the tools were beginning to emerge. So I went through that and invented a new class of analytics, which really does a better job of, say, predicting how every customer or every employee feels about an organization or a brand. And it does that every day without relying on surveys or conversational analysis. And that gave me the ability to give a better answer to a question I was asked by one of the first clients, which is, if we do something we know customers don't like, could you tell us which customers will leave and what we can do about it? And of course, the answer was, it depends upon how they feel about you. If they already love you, they'll probably forgive you. But if they already hate you, this might be the final act that breaks the relationship. And your problem was that you don't understand that when you do something a customer doesn't like, that they don't like it. It's that you didn't understand how each customer's feel. Skip forward to today. And I'm using this now to identify customers who are ready, willing, and able to buy more or do something like reduce agent churn in contact centers or retain employees in things like the retail or hospitality sectors. But it's very much about how do people feel about the experiences they're going through? Peter, these are complex subtleties, human emotion, you know, the term digital empathy. First, what I had to do was look at the definition of human empathy, right? The ability to recognize the perspective of another person. But can you define digital empathy for us and what that means in the context of how it's important in both customer experience and customer service? Yes, absolutely. So you're quite right. Empathy is very well understood and it's defined. I'll use three pillars that I'll talk to, though. First of which is cognitive empathy. That is identifying the emotions of other people and why they feel them. The second of which is what humans are really good at, which is emotional empathy, which is feeling the same way. In other words, putting ourselves in their shoes. And the third one is affective empathy or compassion, which is being moved to take an action as a result of those feelings. Now, when it comes to our dealings with customers or employees in the past, 
we established rapport, that is getting that understanding, through human-to-human interactions. But with the transition to digital channels, we lost a lot of that ability. And quite often what happened was that low friction, so frictionless experience, began to equal low traction. So we were losing those moments of rapport. Now, if that's human empathy, digital empathy is when we use these techniques to understand what's going on in all the other channels where one party isn't a human. And so we're using cognitive and effective empathy to understand what it is that, for example, a customer is feeling and why, and then taking or selecting an action that we can do. And we don't do emotional empathy because computers don't feel emotions. We can try and replicate the effect of them, but they don't really feel. But what it does do is feed the operational decisions that we then make. So if, Amelia, I understood you felt a particular way, and that was different from how I feel about the same thing, then I would take two different actions to reflect how you feel, which really demonstrates that we're listening to customers, we're understanding what they need, both rationally and emotionally, and we can respond to each person at the individual level. Now, when it comes to contact centers or people who are working remotely, the problem is the same. Often we can't actually see the employee. So techniques like management by walking around don't really work so well. So we need other things to help us understand, well, where is this person as an employee? Where's their head at right now? Or perhaps more importantly, where is their heart at? So thinking about this and to get back to the second part of your question, why is it important? Well, the evidence is clear and we've got mountains of data that show that when you treat people as human beings, that dramatically improves their experience and their understanding of it. So they evaluate it as much higher, even when you tell them no. So even if you can't give them what they want, if you've taken the time to listen to them and understand them and then respond to them in a way that demonstrates that you've done that, they'll accept that they might get a negative outcome, but at least they felt that they've had a human-to-human interaction. So digital empathy is trying to replicate some of the things that we're used to in the face-to-face or the voice-to-voice environment, but doing it across all the other channels of, say, where one party isn't a human being. Is it correct to assume that what you're saying is it's not so much what an organization does with their customer, but how they do it? It is indeed. And I know lots of organizations really focus on providing these frictionless, smooth interactions, customer journeys, which are very well orchestrated. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, but they often don't feel very human. And I'm not suggesting that we reintroduce friction. But what I am saying is that when we do get those moments to establish rapport, we absolutely maximize them. Right. Let's dive a little bit deeper into this cognitive empathy and how we can look at the life cycle events to get a real complete view of the customer journey and how this type of analyzation of how an organization is operating can really make overall big changes and positive changes. Yeah, so a lot of organizations get this wrong. If you ask somebody how they feel, it's very difficult for them to give you an answer. So we do use techniques, firstly, to understand what is it that customers really care about. And one of the ways to do that is to listen about what they're talking about. So if you look at conversations where customers are describing something, this is typically what happens. They'll talk about what stood out in their mind about that experience or that interaction. So the most important thing that they recall. 
And because we're human beings, what we'll do is use emotional language to describe it, why it was important to us, why it was memorable. Now, there's lots of really important work going on in trying to come up with perfect, 100% accurate analyses of conversations. That's not what we're trying to do. What we're doing is looking at, well, if lots of customers start talking about the same thing, and they're all using the same emotive language to describe it, then we can begin to understand that this is an interaction which has real weight. So the first thing you do is you get this understanding of what is it that our customers or our employees genuinely care about. The next thing you do is you then look for that happening in the transactional data using things like journey analytics or your transactional analytics. So if something that is one of these important moments has happened to Peter, and we know that it forces or generates certain types of emotions, we can begin to make an estimate that, well, you know, Peter probably feels much the same way. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Lots of organizations try to join the dots between what was it that caused the event and a direct outcome. They canceled their account. But remember what I said, it depends upon how they feel. So that's actually quite difficult to do because most of the things that generate emotions in us as human beings don't immediately cause a reaction. So you can irritate me. I don't immediately give up on our relationships just because you've irritated me a little bit. But if you keep doing it long enough, eventually I'll get to the point where I'm so frustrated and irritated that I will take that negative action. So on the one hand, use the analytics that you've got about journeys and interactions, and as you mentioned, life stages, but also the service that you're delivering to get an understanding of what's important to your customers. And secondly, then use your transactional data, your structured data to say one of those things has just happened to this customer. It will have modified the way that they think. And that was the bit that took me three years to figure out how to do. So it was actually coming back to some fundamental basics about the way we identify what's important and then how we use that to generate these insights that did work. So that's the heart of it. So it's important that we understand that just because you do something that I have feelings about doesn't immediately mean I'm going to do something you can observe directly as a result. It's not a linear equation, right? This is something that is complex and deep and moving in all directions in a lot of ways. And it's so incredible that you have been able to isolate and really identify how we can make changes in the right direction, even though it's not linear. So you mentioned moments that matter versus moments of truth. And I can't wait for you to dive in to more of this because they do sound similar, but you say they are very different. Yes. And as I say, this is part of the challenge because when we're documenting journeys and we're building analytics, we look for those moments of inflection, which we sometimes call a moment of truth. So for my definition, a moment of truth is comprised of two things. The point at which we make a decision to act and the moment at which we do act. And that's often something that we can observe. And a lot of attention is faced on trying to understand what it was that influenced that moment of inflection. But what happens in real life is that leading up to this point, we've had lots of moments that matter. Now, moments that matter is any event or interaction which generates an emotional response that may not directly lead to an action. The problem for many organizations is that moments that matter because they don't cause an observable event, they find it impossible to detect. 
Now, it is actually detectable. Let's say if we go back and think about, well, what do our customers talk about and the emotional language they use to talk about those things, they may say, well, queuing at the bank, I really don't like that. It's frustrating. I hate the waiting. But they don't quit. They, they mostly patiently wait to get served. So by analyzing what people talk about, we can identify moments of truth that do not cause an action. The trick is to then use those to keep recording. Well, how are they influencing the way that people feel? So when does that, those multiple moments of irritation eventually lead to the point of such great irritation, anger, and frustration that that person then triggers a change in their behavior? So we see the moment of truth at the end of that chain, but there are lots of moments that matter that lead up to it. So when we're looking at customer journeys and using customer journey analytics and orchestration, it's important that we recognize that these moments that matter, we need to focus on those to make sure that we are delivering positive rather than negative interactions. Or if we have to do something that's negative, that we take into that into account in how that may have changed the mindset of that customer. Because at the end of the day, most human beings tend to make decisions with a very big component of emotionality. We like to think that we're logical and rational, that we make good decisions. But the reality is for most of us, many of our decisions are emotional first and we rationalize it afterwards. So you may be delivering a brilliant service, but actually is leaving customers feeling unsatisfied. Their disposition towards you is actually becoming more negative. Being treated like a human being is so important. We don't want to be treated like a case number or we don't want to be involved in a call where it feels like you're just trying to get me off the phone as quickly as you possibly can. Now, striking the balance is, of course, important. But as I say, it's not just about being nice to people. Being polite, being nice is, of course, important. There's a hard edge to this and that it actually impacts the bottom line. So what I call the economics of empathy we can actually measure the impact of compassion and empathy in terms of things like revenue and costs and so on. And it makes good business sense. It's not just something that's nice to do and actually feels good for our employees to be involved in those positive relationships as well. Can you go a little deeper on that, Peter, and tell us what the bottom line change can really be when an organization decides to really focus on digital empathy? Yes, I'll use something I call empographic segmentation. Sounds grandiose, but what it really means is people who belong to a group where they share similar emotions. And I'm going to talk about one group I did identify, and these seem to be counterintuitive. So often we're told, focus on your happier customers. You know. But I was very interested in a group I called the overlooked and neglected. These are typical customers who have been with you for a long time, but they might say, well, you take me for granted. You reserve all your best offers for new customers. You only contact me when you want something or you want to sell me something. And whilst they're not leaving, so they're not actively churning, neither are they taking on board more products, neither are they more economically active. So what we found is that when you identify that empographic segment, the target should be to move them to the point where they feel about you as if you're as good or bad as anybody else. In other words, neutral. And when you get to, them to that point of neutral disposition, then they do become more economically active. And in fact, the ROI was one of the best cases we'd ever seen. So spending a little bit of money just to make those people feel more valued, more engaged, delivered a great result. But when we took a very similar group of people who were already neutral and we tried to make them happy, we spent a lot of money 
for no extra sales. In other words, it was negative ROI. And they would typically say, I'm happy enough. You know, I don't need anything else, but you're doing an okay job. Thanks very much. And yes, I'm happier. Thanks very much for that, but I don't need anything else. So when we work with businesses in how they manifest this, they use this to inform their decisions. So should we focus on raising this group to a point where they become more economically active? Have I got a group of, for example, employees who I think are at risk of resigning? And before they get there, can I intervene early and put them back on track so that we can actually retain them for a little bit longer or put them back into the point where they're more motivated? And when you do that, let's say the results are measurable. So firstly, let's look at costs. So using JIR orchestration with these kind of analytics, what we can do is stop trying to sell to people that don't want to hear from you. Reduce your marketing campaigns. Don't make these offers, which somebody might redeem. That's those neutral, happy people say, thanks very much. I'll take the money, but it isn't going to change how I feel. So you can actually reduce the cost and scope of your marketing. The revenues go up because now you've got more customers for longer who stay active. So they continue to buy more. So not only do they have your credit card in their wallet, they're using it, which is, of course, what we want. At that point, they like us and they trust us and they have the wherewithal to do more. So we can identify a target for a new sales campaign. But the thing that really was quite interesting when I was looking at things like customer satisfaction was this is really important to those organizations that are either looking at why do people buy in the first place? That's a complex and quite different conversation. Happy to have that another day. But what they want to know is how do we keep or improve the customer lifetime value? And that's the bit where I say not only are customers loyal and satisfied, they trust us, they know what we do, we add value to their lives, they're happy to spend more money with us. And all of that is predictable. So that economics of empathy thing, it doesn't just feel to finance officers or sales officers as if it's a nice to have. It has a hard value associated to it that you can predict, much more so than customer satisfaction, because we've all seen people who said, I'm very satisfied with you as a supplier, and then churn off and join a competitor the very next day. So it went right back to this point where I said, I wanted a better predictive technique. And the reality is that if you can include some measure of human behavior into a predictive model that then informs your operational system, you make better decisions. Decisions which are better for the customer, better for the organization, and deliver better results to stakeholders. Boy, this is ringing true on so many levels. Sometimes when I open up my email inbox and I think, I see a company send me a message about an offer and I think, hey, I've already been with you for 10 years. You don't need to be sending me these offers. And it's more of an annoyance. And once they taper off, I think, okay, good. I haven't heard from them in a while. Let's leave well enough alone. So boy, this is really hitting home. And Peter, this is just the tip of the iceberg on your topic. So as we wrap things up here, why don't you let our listeners know where they can learn more about you and your team and how they can get in touch? Yeah, thank you, Amelia. So if anybody would like to find out more about this, you can either look for me on LinkedIn, and I do publish quite a lot into the public domain, or go to anthrolytics.io. There's an insight section there where, again, we publish quite a lot. We talk about the technology and how it works. And I'm always open to discussions. I guess like every other organization, I'm always willing to learn something new. I don't have all of the answers. After all, as you pointed out, human behavior is complex and subtle and nuanced. And I'll finish with this final thought, because this comes up a lot. People say, you know, how do you make sure it's 100% accurate? The answer is, I can't. 
Nobody can. Nobody has got a 100% accurate deterministic model of human behavior. But what we have got to is the point where we are much better than anything currently available. And that's because the operations of large organizations or those businesses that are focusing on their customers' employees begin to feel more human. And after all, in a digital world, if we can make it feel a little bit more human and really reflect the fact that I don't value the same things, even with the same organization all of the time, then I can get a much more personal experience that feels like just that, that you're talking to me as an individual person with my own wants and needs. Oh, Peter, great chat. Thank you so much for being here today. It's been my pleasure, Amelia. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on the CX Pulse podcast. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. This podcast is brought to you by NICE, the world's leading cloud CX platform. Go to nice.com to learn more about our innovative and comprehensive end-to-end CX solutions. That's nice.com.